This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, we're going to have a great episode today with Adam Bronson of Bronson Outfitting out of Cedar City, Utah. Before we get into that episode, I want to thank you guys for listening and supporting this podcast. If you would like to send me any questions or comments in regards to hunting or the podcast or guests that you'd like to see on the podcast or anything else, please email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along our adventures on our Instagram page, and that's at jscottoutdoors, and my associate Dar Colburn is at Dar Colburn. That's D-A-R-R Colburn, C-O-L-B-U-R-N. You can also follow along on our blog, jscottoutdoors.com, and we have an ever-growing YouTube channel, and that is J. Scott. Just type in on YouTube, J. Scott Outdoors, and it will come right up. Uh, Guys, like I said, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast, and uh, we've got 2016 staring us right here in the face, and application season is right around the corner, and uh, Dar and I are headed to Sonora, Mexico to, to uh, chase coos deer during the rut, and it's uh, just shaping up to be another great uh, winter, and, and uh, moisture is starting to hit around, and we're hoping for, for another uh, a wet uh, year and uh, good antlers. So, guys, thanks for supporting the podcast. Let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got a cool episode. We've got Mr. Adam Bronson from Cedar City, Utah. And Adam runs Bronson Outfitting. And um, he's uh, one of the best guides around in the Southwest here and uh, has lots of of, uh, hunting experience all over the world. And I'm excited to have you on. Adam, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Um, Adam, you're from Cedar City, Utah. Uh, why don't you give me a little bit of your background, maybe how you got your start in hunting and then uh, how it's led you to where you're at now? Sure. Uh, well, I guess maybe like a lot of us, uh, I had a dad uh, that drug, drug me to the hills as a little boy with my younger brother, Aaron. And uh, we joke about it now as he accompanies us on a lot of our guided hunts now that he's retired he he says i i wish i would have known what i was doing infecting you guys as, <laughs> as, as i did but uh you created know, a couple couple monsters huh <laughs> yeah and uh yeah, but that that's great a lot of fond memories and, and and uh that's that's how i got my start I had a dad that just literally drug us to the hills every chance he could and and allowed us to fall in love with the places he took us and the animals and things we got to see. Um, I'm originally from Monticello, Utah, down in the southeast corner of Utah um, on the San Juan unit. That's uh, where I was born and raised, a great rural part of southern Utah with a lot of, you know, great, great animals. You know, saw the rise of uh, that elk unit over there and had some great deer and just a, a perfect place for uh, uh, a rural southern Utah 
kid to get lost and have a lot of fun. Um, after high school and whatnot, I, uh, I went on to Southern Utah University in Cedar City and obtained a bachelor's degree in biology and then went directly on to Utah State University and received a master's degree in wildlife biology and went directly to work for Utah Division of Wildlife Resources as a biologist down in Southern Utah. And so pretty much all throughout high school, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to, you know, I wanted some uh, a livelihood that had something to do with wildlife, and that's the path that I took. And, uh, and it was a great path. Uh, had a graduate project that studied desert bighorn sheep and their water use in southern Utah and and uh, while I was a biologist got to manage some of the some of the greatest parts of southern Utah in my opinion the the Ponsagant, the, the Boulder, the Mount Dutton, Penguich Lake, Parowitz sheep units, you know, just a big diversity of of, of awesome wildlife type uh, country in southern Utah. And then, you know, kind of completely out of nowhere had had an opportunity to leave uh, the government work and go to the private sector, and I guess if you will, and, and work as a hunting consultant and whatnot. After I left as a biologist is when when I started Bronson Outfitting with my brother. Um, Being that once once I did no longer have any conflicts there as a state biologist, I could I could guide, and that's when we started that. And uh, over the last six or eight years of uh, done some different things now we're, we're uh, getting uh, involved with another another business um, epic outdoors that uh, we're going to be pushing for with uh, this next year heavily but that and Bronson outfitting have uh, have now where I'm landed where I'm real happy to help help drive the ship on both both uh, um, for both those and uh, yeah things are going really well for us that's awesome. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, being a wildlife biologist for the state. Um, I'm sure you got to uh, see a lot of different things in that position, um, which probably helps you even now being a guide, um, whether it's knowing the country or having a real in-depth uh, understanding of those animals. Um, with Bronson Outfitting, uh, I would before we talk about Bronson outfitting personally, if you had to pick one animal that is your favorite animal to hunt, and I know you've probably gotten you've been asked this question many many times, what is your favorite animal to hunt, and why? That's really hard because I have really two favorites, but okay, let's um, hear the two. Sheep and mule and big mule deer. Those are really that's that's what I wake up and think about every day. And and partly I guess with the mule deer because of the fact that like many of us in southern Utah and even that throughout the West we cut our teeth hunting mule deer. In the 80s and and 90s things were fairly good compared to a lot of places now. And and I think that that difficulty and, and of finding and killing a big mule deer is just what's elevated them in, in not only mine, but probably a lot of Western big game hunters' minds. is It's not like it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, either a good tag or a lot of work and scouting and effort on general season units, and 
killing a big deer is just so hard to do. And uh, there's just something about them. I've learned so much from hunting them. And then bighorn sheep, whether they be Rocky Mountain or desert bighorn, uh, I was exposed to those by my dad when I was six or eight years old uh, down in southern San Juan County. And for whatever reason, they just stuck with me. And that, that was very fortunate for me as I went to college, got to study those in graduate school and become a biologist for them. And frankly, is the reason why I, I really love to guide sheep is because most people don't get to hunt them, including myself, as many times in my life as I would I would want to hunt them. I, I could hunt them every year many times. And the only way to do that is to now to take other people that draw tags and acquire tags and do that. So there's just something about sheep, where they live, the animals themselves, and the places that you get to go chase them that's just just incredible so those are the two that are really hard to separate for me as the bay I, I would hate to pick pick a favorite because if i flipped a coin and it landed heads i'd be bummed that i couldn't pick the other one just as much so that's truly yeah that's truly what you know what makes me tick i could hear when i asked the question i could tell from the pause that it was an oh no don't make me choose and I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, my wife always answers that question when people ask me. She says, whatever season it is at the time, that's his favorite. And I kind of smile at her answer. Um, you know, as far as the bighorn sheep, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying as far as the one thing that I think are, you know, sh makes sheep so cool is it seems like, and, and I can't speak for the sheep that you run into a lot in Utah, but down here in Arizona, one thing about the sheep is, it's one of those animals that uh, you could almost sit and watch them all day. Um, whereas I think other animals, you get to watch them and it, you know, becomes boring. Uh, and I'm not even talking about big rams. I mean, it just something about those those sheep and those rams that I can just sit and watch them and and um, you know, just watch what they're doing. And 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 it's it's amazing some of the things that they you know crawl up and some of the crags and rocks and. And um, they're just a really neat animal. Um, with Bronson Outfitting and, and your business, uh, do you guide for pretty much all big game species? Uh, you know, elk, mule deer, sheep, uh, antelope, all the different species? Or do you kind of focus on just a few? We can and we have. It, it truly depends on, on our schedule. In an ideal world, if I have a, a few really high-end mule deer hunts here in Utah and a bunch of sheep for me personally to go guide on, that's a perfect year. Now, I always like to get an elk hunter to in because who doesn't like chasing screaming bulls? And in Utah, we hunt them every day of September with varying weapons. And so it's it's hard not to love Utah elk hunting. And, and that, you know, but I would put those slightly behind the, the sheep and deer. So we do do elk. Um, we've taken buffalo hunters. You know, you know the sprinkling of goats, antelope, and things like that. But primarily, um, you know, I, I, my brother and I, and and some of our, our our top guides do all the hunts together. Usually, um, we gang tackle them, so to speak. And partly that's because, uh, you know, with sheep hunts, that's how we like to do it, just to ensure that we can we can pull them off with the greatest success and give the, our clients the best experience that they can. They're not something you just send a hunter with a guide and say, Hey, go, go, you know, good luck. Yeah. You know, they, they kind of, they deserve everything. 
all your attention and, and big mule deer, whether, you know, like on the Henry mountains where we're always liking to spend time are the same thing. We, we, we never want to underachieve. We want to find and target and stay with the biggest deer that we fill are on the unit and, and try to come away with harvesting one of those. And that, and that ends up, you know, me and them sometimes there are three or four of us. And, and part of the reason is nobody wants to be left, left behind on our crew. You know, <laughs> if somebody's going yeah. to have a big deer on the Henry's. We all want to be there, even though you may only really need two or three. So, um, but, uh, yeah, we do, we do everything. And, and it really, it really comes down to our schedule. You know, we, I, I also, uh, guide in Nevada primarily for sheep and the simple reason that I've I've done that in the last few years is their sheep seasons are after Utah is pretty much done and allows me to maybe squeak another one or two sheep hunts in a year in late November early December across the border here two three hours from my house and so while while deer and sheep are, are primary we do we do do elk every year and then you know the occasional other species. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the mule deer on the Henrys, and um, I, I'm not up to speed on how the seasons went this year between, I believe they have, what, an archery and a muzzleloader and a, a rifle season. How was it out there as far as antler growth, and did some big bucks get harvested? It, it was. It was a good year. Um, we had a very, I don't know what I want to call it, strange, but an unusually wet April, May, and early June here in southern Utah, and I know northern Arizona to some extent because we share some of the same weather patterns, kind of have the same thing, and it, it was beautiful down there pretty much all throughout the summer. It dried out a little bit like it normally does in late July before the monsoons kicked up again in August, but it was a, a great year from a forage standpoint. It, it, it kind of seemed to scatter the deer. The deer could have been spread out from the low Pinion juniper stuff clear to the top of the mountains on the Henrys, and and I like it when it's like that. The deer aren't all clumped and on top of each other. Some years it just seems like these. They're also concentrated at certain elevations around certain mountains that everybody's kind of looking at or in the same general area. And they were really spread out. We were we were fortunate enough to take a muzzleloader hunter down there this year and and hunt a deer for five days that we had to ourselves the complete. The whole time never never had any other hunters even around us and that's nice um there are three seasons like you said there's about 10 archery tags total 10 muzzleloader and 25 to 30 um rifle tags um and that that's how the seasons fall in order but it was uh overall some great deer came off the henry's this year and i would definitely say it was was a was a great year better than average for sure what would you say the condition as far as the Henry's, um, is it ever been as good as it's, as it's been? Is it is, is the trophy quality going up? Is it staying the same or is it petered off a little bit? Guys, GoHunt.com Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast. Get everything you need in one spot. Join Insider today. Find and plan your hunts more effectively than ever. Complete state coverage. See detailed information for every unit, every species, every hunt. Interactive maps. Quickly find hunts that meet your exact search criteria and explore them easily. Strategy articles. Learn new things and find hidden opportunities with exclusive articles. Species breakdowns. Top trophy units are hiding in plain sight. Find them 
with our statistics and historical data. Another great thing about GoHunt.com Insider is they have monthly giveaways that are worth 100000 plus a year. Each month you will automatically be entered to win gear, tags, and hunts. That is if you're an Insider member. Past prizes include a $22,000 doll sheep hunt, uh, three Red Rock Precision Rifles with the $21,000 value, uh, five Zeiss Conquest HD binoculars with a $7,500 value. Not to mention this past July they gave away four hunts, an antelope hunt, two elk hunts, and a mule deer hunt. Join Insider today and get a $50 Kuyu gift card. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash Insider, click on the blue Join Now button, use the promo code JSCOTT at checkout, and GoHunt.com will send you a $50 Kuyu gift card. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being the title sponsor of this podcast. I would definitely say, having guided there over the last 10 years, that from about 2007 to 2010 were probably the very best years that, that we had. Uh, there was a very large wildfire, a couple of them actually, in 2004. Um, a lot of sea, aerial seeding and chain you know, went, went on right after them. And we had a big, big winter that year, and those those reseeds just came in incredible. And I think a lot of that that boom, if you will, you know, had to do with some of that fire. It also, you know, made it a little easier to be able to glass and find those deer in those areas. But from a forage standpoint, it just really boomed. And that you, you can see that whether it's elk or or deer across the the western U.S. is after fires, you know, two to five years after it, things just seem to seem to boom. And I, I think now it, it's definitely tapered off from those years. It, it's still good. And, and like everything, sometimes when you're comparing it to the past, you maybe realize that maybe we're a little bit spoiled with how good something really, really was. And you could probably say that same thing about Utah's elk from 2004 to 2008 or nine, that they were, it was incredible. You know, the records and books bear that out. And, Overall, looking back now, they elk-wise, they're not as good as they were then. They're still good. They're still great bulls to be had. There's just not as many of them on some of these top-end units. Um, but uh, the Henrys, yeah, it, it's still one of the top two or three places in the western U.S., in my opinion. And with as much effort and sportsman involvement that's... Uh, involved in the Henry's, I don't really see that changing. I mean, if it's in the Division Wildlife's best interest and the sportsmen obviously have a big vested interest to keep that elevated to what it is. And so um, while there's going to be peaks, valleys, things like that, I don't think they're ever going to be that big. It's always going to be good. It's just probably, um, it's hard to maintain it. Hunters have gotten better too. Our equipment's gotten better too. And frankly, those very top end deer are, they're marked individuals when it comes to yeah. those crop of, uh, you know, 40 to 50 hunters that get turned loose every year down there. Absolutely. Um, Adam, what is the state of the Ponce God as far as the same question I about asked you about the Henry's, uh, how is it going down on the Ponce God and are we in a up cycle? Are we the same? Or are we in a down cycle as far as trophy quality, numbers of deer, et cetera? What, what are we looking at down there? Uh, yeah, that one, that one I think is 
has actually gradually been improving. Um, um, there's been some changes that have that have happened down there, you know, six or eight years ago, some pretty severe permit cuts and, uh, you know, the swapping of the muzzleloader hunt um, uh, to before the rifle hunt now. And, and overall, I, I, they're killing some great deer on it. it it's by no means a, um, a an easy hunt. Um, scouting is absolutely important on the archery and muzzleloader hunt. On the rifle hunt, those deer definitely, uh, in that they're more migratory, it, it's having annual knowledge of where these deer are going to be moving to. And sometimes you're hunting a specific deer and where he was the year before, you're waiting for him to come back. Overall, I would say the Pontagon is definitely on a, on a steady improvement. Um, it's kind of been that way, in my opinion, over the last several years. And uh, I don't really see any any imminent threat to to the status of that. Hopefully, it just keeps maintaining and, and continuing to improve. This last summer, I had Wade Heaton of uh, Color Country Outfitters on the podcast, and he was talking about the uh, predator control. That's um, that I, I believe there was a, a pretty good push to uh, wipe out a bunch of the predators that were hurting the deer, and um, it was interesting to hear from him. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the rifle hunt, because correct me if I'm wrong, like you said, that's a migration hunt. And uh, those deer are moving from the higher elevations of the of the Ponsagon into the lower elevations. And uh, he made it sound like on the rifle hunt, sometimes uh, anybody's guess is anybody's guess as to where they might find a big deer. And I think I, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on the fact that when those deer moved, whether we're talking the Pontagon or wherever we're talking migration, um, my question is, if you had a big deer pegged, let's say, in the high country um, that you knew was going to move, uh, what would you do to try and relocate that big buck down, let's say, as he's transitioning and and or when he's reached uh, where, where he's going to winter? Uh, how, how do you handle that transition? you're really at the mercy of hoping that deer stays put uh, because if they start moving, unless you have some knowledge of that deer the previous year on the winter range or, um, you know, found a shed of him or something like that, if you don't know where he's going, how far south he's going or where he's going to stop, um, it's almost as if you can write that deer off when he, when he moves because then it's just, Somebody lucky is going to maybe run into them, if anybody at all. Uh, it's they're moving, you know, so far from that north end, 20 to 40 miles, uh, that you know that's almost impossible unless you have knowledge of having seen and watched that deer show up the year before, rut, um, you know, live in a certain area. Then I just go there and, and wait, and hopefully he shows up before your your season dates are over. It can be, uh, I'm sure, as a guide and, and having a bead on a big buck and really having your heart set on killing that buck, I'm sure if you don't know where he's going to end up, I'm sure it's a, it's nerve-wracking. Uh, I've heard of stories where big bucks, you know, guys are watching them, watching them, watching them, and then all of a sudden, like two days before the season, just boom, they're gone. And I think one of the hard things, and you can weigh in on this, one of the hard things is, okay, you don't find them, you've been watching them and watching them, and you don't find them, how do you know if he didn't just move around the corner for, for whatever reason, and then you start 
you know, panicking and, and going low and trying to figure out where they're at. Um, what do you do in that situation? Um, do you just try and eliminate that, hey, they yes, they have moved, and then try and follow the path of progress as you can? Yeah, that's pretty much all you can do is try to, you know, if you haven't seen a deer for a day or two, you just have to say, hey, all right, draw a line in the sand, so to speak, and say, all right, we're going to give it until this day, and then we're simply going to have to move. You know, hunt the area that you've seen him in, watched him in all year, and by this day of the hunt, if, if you just can't return him up, you're just going to have to go to plan B because, you know, on a nine-day rifle hunt, you, you know, you just can't. You, you just can't stay there. You know, in this coming year, especially the, the rifle hunt, as as do almost all the dates here in Utah, move uh, five or six days later at the calendar shift. And so there's going to be a lot more uh, of those deer showing up on the southern end of the unit than the northern end of that unit. The higher country is going to be a lot more void of deer by the time that rifle hunt comes. And overall, that's why I, I really favor um, those archery and muzzleloader hunts. I, I'm I'm really programmed to find a deer and invest everything we can to keep track of them um, during their summer range. And during an archery and muzzleloader, you just you're going to be able to you're going to be able to do that, barring a lion or some other, you know, fluke something or other that's going to disturb that deer and its habits. Come your hunt, you're going to having to hunt in the in the bedroom that you've um, found. So. I, you know, obviously not everybody hunts with archery and muzzleloaders, but um, those that do, and especially now with Utah's rule change allowing magnified scopes on muzzleloaders, it's really not that prohibitive. And and I I encourage hunters if they've got the the wherewithal and the confidence to do that, move to that muzzleloader hunt because we'll hunt the deer that we have scouted and found versus just the crapshoot of that rifle hunt now. Now, the Henry's is completely different. The Henry's deer will move some, but they're not migratory like the Ponce gun. So even on the rifle hunt, you'll hunt a deer in general within, you know, a half a mile or a mile where he spent the whole summer. Interesting. Um, you know, you you mentioned briefly there about the elk, and um, so I've got a scenario for you. I have actually 16 bonus points for elk. Uh, in Utah, which, you know, I think is pretty good, but, you know, I, I don't think it gets me obviously into uh, muzzleloader or rifle categories with, with that many points. From what I understand, they are bumping the season, uh, the archery season in Utah for elk back. I want to say, is it six days? I think it goes to the yeah. 16th or maybe the 17th? 16th, I believe, yes. My question would be, how much of an effect do you think on that hunt it makes by bumping it back? I believe that's a five-day bump backwards. Um, how much better do you think those last seven days will be as opposed to five days prior? Uh, based on, you know, this last year, this last year was a very mild and in some cases too hot September. And we had uh, archery elk hunters hunting right up to the very last day and then, of course, the rifle hunt starting, I believe, on the 12th. And it was a fairly slow early rifle hunt that 12th, 13th, 14th. And, and, and we got a cool down and some rain and all that. And that always triggered bulls, as we know. But it just seemed like that 14th and 15th, the switch finally flipped and the bulls started going nuts. And so I think for archery hunters, 
um, that like to hunt them in the rut, which I don't know anybody that doesn't, it's going to be a big deal. You know, those five or six days um, are dramatic. Now, I'm also a very big fan of hunting that very, very first week. Our Utah seasons are 28 days with a bow. And while most people write off that first two weeks, um, if somebody's got the time and, and you know, can, can scout, that's a great time to kill a big, big bull that first week. So that first week and last week, the first week before they start thinking about cows and wallowing and uh, moving and things like that is a great time to just, you know, get in his, in his uh, bedroom, hunting where he's been living all year. And if it doesn't happen, uh, I do think, yeah, bouncing back that last week or 10 days, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be dramatically better, obviously weather dependent. If we get a hot, high pressure camped over us there, then it's going to maybe minimize the impact. But um, kind of like mule deer in the rut in November in, in, in a state like Colorado from the 2nd to the 6th or 7th of November can be a dramatic difference when you're talking about bucks moving does. And I think I think it has potential to be a pretty significant uh, difference in this year's archery season. Right on. And in your opinion with 16, um, say, what are the top, let's say, top four or five units, uh, top three, four or five units that I should be looking at, in your opinion, with 16 points uh, for archery? Um, probably some of those that have kind of remained towards the top of that four or so list. You know, San Juan, the Plateau Boulder, Beaver, Fillmore Pavant. Um, I would probably characterize those in my top four. Um, the problem as a non-resident, as you well know, in some of those units, they only give maybe one one tag. And so it goes in the random draw and your points will will give you... Not even matter, right? Yeah, they'll give you more names in the hat, but, but that's it. They're, that you can, you can get flooded with applicants with, with zero to 10 points, whatever, that ultimately pull the tag. And, and a couple of those that do have maximum point tags. Um, you know, this year's going to, I imagine there's going to be a little bit of a point creep. Uh, you know, I know last year I heard from a lot of guys that knew and anticipated this, this date shift was going to happen in 2016 that simply withheld and didn't apply, or they applied for the premium hunt or something, the multi-season hunt last year, uh, just, you know, saying, well, if I draw, let it be the very best. Let me hunt every season on the unit. This year, I anticipate there's going to be more archers come back to the archery hunt. So, yeah, interesting, um, interesting. And the quality of bulls um, was it strictly from I think you said 04 to 08 or 09? Was that strictly a matter of the limit on the number of tags, or did it also have to do with some of those burns and such? I mean, it seemed like Utah went from you know top end bulls you know, 370, 380, you know, th maybe 390 type bulls, and all of a sudden they were killing 420, 430 bulls, it seemed like. Uh, what was what caused that, and then maybe what what has brought it back to where it is now? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, you know, the San Juan's probably a great example for this. They brought out their transplanted them there in the mid to late 1980s, and, you know, obviously didn't hunt that for a, a, quite a few years, then when they'd opened up, it was like five total people hunting it, you know, and then it just gradually, you know, increased. And I think for a lot of years, I don't think, I think we under-harvested 
um, some of these units that were really, re and they got really, really top heavy with seven to ten year old bulls, and that that you know that was pretty much the case even on units that now I would call you know tier two units like Penguin Lake or Mount Dutton or um, well Monroe is kind of a you know between a tier one and a tier two unit in my mind, but uh, you know Fish Lake these units that all of them were were under harvesting bulls because of the the limited entry um, scenario was was new is in place and after five or ten years we just had really grown or allowed a lot of bulls to, to grow old and then in about 2000 you know seven eight nine ten is when game managers and management plans started to tweak a little bit and the age objectives some of them came down and tags increased and that's it, in my opinion it's as simple as that now individually on some units there would have been some habitat things like that that have been going on but but for me it's just we were under harvesting them being so conservative with tags for so long that they were just so top heavy and then as tag numbers increased um it, it the cream just got skimmed and in some units they kind of in my opinion overshot um overshot things in terms of they increased too fast and the average age really dropped and some of those units now they backed back off on their tags you know there's a couple units um, that they've done that on but overall I think things are fair are, are really fairly stable now it's just kind of the new normal it's not the 2004 to 2008 that we all remember and shake our heads in disbelief at how many 400 inch bulls Utah were throwing out but it's still really really good and uh, there's those top end bulls on on those top tier units as well as some of those second or mid tier units just not near as many of them as there used to be. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, it's exciting stuff uh, for someone. You know, I feel like I've just been waiting. And and uh, you know, um, do you know anything about the trends for the coming year as far as the dates for the archery season? Are they going to now start trending backwards, or or have they announced that? Unless unless something changes, everything is predicated on um, the archery hunt starting the third Saturday in August. And so some years that can creep as, as early as the 15th because you'd have the, a Saturday the 1st, a Saturday the 8th, and then a Saturday the 15th. And that was the case last year in 2015. Well, then this year it ratcheted, and so you got to get to the 20th to be on the third Saturday in August. So that's really what drives it. And so even though there's not like a five-year season structure or something in print like say Colorado has and you can look ahead and see exactly um, when it's going to be that that's how Utah operates now that could always be changed at a, at a rack and a wildlife board public process but the 20th is when it's going to start this year you can just look next year and see when that's going to be and obviously when a leap year happens it kind of shifts two days early in that year but uh, yeah we, we've fallen back that five or six days and then it'll start creeping back forward towards the uh, 15th unless some type of regulatory change or something like that uh, as to when the starting dates uh, were to happen or every couple of years it seems like there's a there's a couple proposals that seem to surface about you know revamping it all together and uh, you know you know picking brand new start dates you know the first to the 20th for the archery and then the 21st to the 28th for the rifle and, and then the muzzleloader after it but but so far that those haven't gone anywhere uh, i want to ask you one thing here about muzzleloader um 
as far as just wanting, if, if someone was looking for just a great bugling hunt and not necessarily worried uh, as much about, you know, the size of bull that they're going to kill, but which season would be better, in your opinion, for just sheer bugling and chaos, the last seven days of the archery season or the muzzleloader season that goes after the rifle, which pressures those bulls and what have you? As far as a bugling standpoint, which, which hunt would be better? You know, last year, without question, uh, the muzzleloader was the best hunt uh, of even all three of the hunts, not just comparing the archery and the muzzleloader. And that had a lot to do with the dates. And they've also added uh, last year three extra days to that muzzleloader hunt. So now it starts the very day right after the rifle hunt ends and goes, you know, for 12 days. That's a pretty incredible hunt, even though it goes into October. Um, a lot of people think, oh, the red will be over. That's not been my experience. Um, is sometimes, you know, weather can obviously play a, a big role in this. Sometimes the bulls get going the later, latter part of the archery hunt and just really peak during that rifle hunt and start tailing off in the muzzleloader hunt. And I guess if you had to guess, you could say that maybe now that the muzzleloader is as late as it's going to be, that that could potentially happen. But it definitely, on the on the early end of that hunt for the opener, is not going to be going on. It, it's a it's a great hunt in Utah. That muzzleloader hunt last year was was incredible. It was uh, so I would say, given that you've got you know a full 12 days, um, I would probably say that hunt versus just the last week of the of the archery. But um, you've also got to factor in other things like well, the archery hunt you're first and. Right. Uh, not as many bulls have gone home in the backs of pickup trucks between the archery hunt and the early rifle hunt before you get to the muzzleloader hunt. So, but but given the parameters you outlined, somebody that's not totally as consumed with inches and size of bull just wants a great ex- rut experience and all that. Um, the muzzleloader is a great hunt in Utah, and uh, now now that you can use a magnified scope, you know, guys can be a lot more precise and effective, you know, killing bull. Sure. I heard you mention earlier in the in the podcast um, you guide for sheep in Nevada, and I distinctly remember a ram. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before you and your friend Jason Carter um, guided for a ram that had a really big longhorn on one side, like a real big full curl, um, just a really neat ram. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, that was a, a friend and, and, and obviously a client of mine, uh, Drew the tag. He's a resident of Utah, and uh, Jason and I are licensed sub guides at the time under uh, Victor Trujillo, uh, very well-known sheep um, outfitter and master guide in Nevada. And uh, that was in the Muddy Mountains, Unit 268, just outside of Las Vegas. And we were down there in the summer, July, and uh, found that ram and obviously you're excited to find a ram like that but then you realize geez this is a long time until november 20th when and a lot biologically is going to be going on between now and then because those sheep will rut from july through about the when the hunt starts and you know are we going to be able to keep track of this ram and by no means did we keep track of him from july to november every day or every week but uh we were fortunate uh when we showed back up in mid-november um you know i remember the night i, I refound him and it was about three or four nights before the hunt and i just i just just 
you know, got on the phone, called the hunter and Jason. I said, it's game on, got him. And, uh, you know, it all worked out opening day. It was a special Ram, um, you know, definitely had eye appeal, um, didn't have the bases to be a, oh, I guess, I mean, he's a 177 inch net Ram, which is great for Nelson Bighorn, but he, but he, uh, he looks a lot bigger than that because of his, you know, almost our, our galley look and, uh, very special Ram. And, we had another hunter actually that we took about 10 days later that we killed an even bigger ram on that most people would would not would would shoot the first ram um but but he had an inch and a quarter bigger bases and as you know mass mass wins you know roughly 60 percent of ram scores are going to come from mass and so he was 182 and a half net and uh but that was a, that was a very fun year and when you have a that was the first year that uh we decided to guide sheep down there. When you kill a couple of rams like that, it's hard not to want to go right back and keep it up. And so I've done that. I've now got my master guide license uh, for 2016. And so uh, uh, Victor's been great to work under and with. And, uh, you know, I remain good friends with him. And and uh, look forward, like I said, just to take an extra sheep hunter or two every year, simply to to get another sheep hunter two in before you got to hang it up for winter. That's that's as simple as it gets for me down there. Yeah, I'm. I know exactly what you mean. I'm kind of uh, in the doldrums now, so to speak. Uh, we just finished our desert sheep hunts down here, and Dar had a rocky hunter in six A, and I had a hunter in twenty two, and um, we've got coos deer hunts down in Sonora here. Um, we leave on the seventh of January, so I'm kind of in no man's land right now, but. Um, been gone so much this fall, so it's it's nice to spend a little bit of time at home. We had, I had a little bit of a roller coaster this fall, um, a ram that we had found last year um, when scouting for the auction hunter, the desert sheep auction hunter. We found a ram that just in our mind wasn't, it just, he needed another year. And um, the hunter really wanted a 185 inch ram. And I just couldn't promise him that it was 185. And Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, Dar and I had nicknamed this ram Gnarly, and um, really cool ram. And so I was fortunate this year to get a 22 sheep hunter, and um, just extremely excited about the opportunity to hunt Gnarly this year. And had sent my hunter a bunch of photos and video, and that was kind of the the, the ram that we were kind of judging all other rams against. And um, Got to watch him this fall and get some great photos of him before the hunt and video. And he had actually pushed out quite a bit. And I think he, you know, comparing video from 14 to 15, uh, just one of those rams. He, you know, he he kind of blew up in my opinion. And he had he had a pretty predominant chip on his right side. And uh, quite honestly, I think he pushed you know pushed out a little bit more length and and uh, just happened to miss that chip. Um, but uh, he was. Uh, Sam Derringer was guiding the uh, the auction hunter and um, Tony Loop from Augusta, Georgia, and he actually harvested the ram, uh, I believe, five days before the season, um, and it was just a heartbreak. Um, happy as anything for Tony and Sam uh, from their accomplishment of, of killing a ram like that with a bow and, you know, potentially being the new world record, but I'm sure you've been in the same situation where you've, you're watching a ram and, and hoping that you get a chance at him and then they you know he ends up getting harvested um it was just a roller coaster for me and um you know I, I i hear you talk about you know animals that you follow and what have you and i know you've been in similar situations where 
you know, your, your heart set on something and then it gets harvested and then it, it's almost, you know, it almost took me 24 hours a little bit just to regroup and say, okay, what's next? Um, you know, what's the next ram we can go after? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I saw the ram as well, you know, on social media and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I know Sam and, uh, and like you said, take my hats off to them. Cause uh, you know, absolutely. to do that with a bow, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort and everything to kind of come together uh, versus just taking a ram like that with the rifle, not to minimize, you know, shooting one of the sure. rifle, but we just know what goes in to make it all have to go right with the bow. So, but no, you're right. I've, um, been in similar situations, whether it be a sheep or deer, that uh, I've been on both sides. I've been, you know, in a situation where I may have a, a auction or a raffle hunter with me, and you've got more more green light season uh, ahead of you or before you or after you that, that, that definitely can help. And uh, other times you're sitting there as with a regular draw hunter, and uh, you're hoping that something stays alive until your hunt. So I've definitely been on both sides, and that's just that's just I guess uh, the break, Part of so, it, so it? to speak. And it, it does, you know, uh, there is a lot of time, you know, particularly with some of our deer that go into um, keeping track and and trying to, you know, there's a lot of deer on the Henrys, particularly that we say, all right, let's let him go a year, and uh, see what happens. And you just hope that nobody else shoots him on another season or you know a lion or something like that and uh a lot of times they never show back up the next year you don't know or a lot of times you'll see them somebody shoot one and, and again not to minimize an animal that somebody shoots or whatever but uh once in a while you you just you, yeah you kind of say dang i wish that could have lived another year and really seen what 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 that animal could have done and the deer we killed on the henry's this year was one of those deer we've watched him grow up over the last three years and uh this is the year he finally made the big jump and uh and uh was a a no-brainer number one slot candidate for us to go after and uh a lot has to happen typical or non-typical adam he act, he he's primarily a typical but he's one of those unique deer he's been officially scored now and he actually nets uh Boone and crockett as a non-typical and typical both. He nets 230. <laughs> yeah, he nets 230 as a non-typical. He grosses 235 and change and nets 230. And as a typical, he nets like 197 and a half. And so he books both ways. He'll be entered as a non-typical. Um, that's just the hunter's choice. And uh, um, I think simply just because it feels like a 230 plus net non-typical is harder to ever do than a 190 plus net typical. And, uh, anyways, that was, that was great to finally put that deer on the ground. And, and that was one of those that had, like I said, three years of, okay, let's let him go, let him go. And you're really hoping and praying that, uh, you know, either other hunters or lions or whatever else allows him to do that. And he finally was able to, um, reach, you know, you know, probably some of his fullest potential this year. I'm sure that was extremely rewarding. Um, but also, you you know, you were on the roller coaster as well to um, hope that he made it through. And I, I'm sure every time that you go back or went back to look for him, hoping that a lion hadn't found him, I mean, you, you're not the only one hunting him. And it's, it's always an exciting time. Uh, it makes for just a roller coaster. And um, it's always exciting. And I'm sure you were, 
real happy to see it come to fruition and let him go last year and, and harvest him this year. So congratulations on that. Um, I want to end our episode, talk a little bit about gear. Um, I know you use some of the best gear out there. I've got a couple questions for you in regards to gear. Um, what, uh, what kind of optics uh, do you use the most or what is in your arsenal of optics? I would dare say if the, the I've had a lot of people ask me that and if you were to take my Swarovski 15s away from me, I would feel <laughs> useless. Um, that's not, that's not to say the cat, my cowards that I have or my spotting scope, uh, my Swarovski spotting scope isn't important, but, uh, as you well know, you guys use the, the guys, the cowards and whatnot. In some places they're definitely beneficial. There's others that they're, they're too much. You don't need them. You, you don't have a field of view and whatnot. But my 15s, um, I don't know. That's what I, we live and die by. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, I just got started with Swarovski. You know, I, so I used the EL10s and SOCHD 15s and, you know, a 65 and an 80, an 80 millimeter scopes. Uh, I'm a straight person. Um, <laughs> no, my <laughs> pun intended, but uh, it's just kind of whatever you get used to using angle, they're straight. And uh, for me, target acquisition with a straight is so much quicker. I've tried to use angle. They have a lot of benefits. Uh, as I tell people that, that don't have, aren't set in their ways, you know, you can have a lot lower riding um, tripod and things like that using an angled and keep, you know, wind bounce and all that down to a minimal by using an angled scope. But I, I just used one for so long and got started with it that looking on the mountain with one eye and lining up and finding something quick for the straight is just what, what I can do better than, than using that, an angle. But, uh, and for whatever reason, I, you know, I got started with Swarovski versus some of the other high-end optics like, you know, Leica or Zeiss, which are, which are great. And, and I've just never, you know, Swarovski, like every other optics company, makes improvements to their glass and has done so. And, and, and as they've done that, I've, I've upgraded and whatnot. And I've never really found myself in my eyes wanting, wanting more. But uh, that's what I, I'm, that's what I use the most. I'm the same way, you know, darn, I started probably 20 years ago now with the 10 by 42 SLC uh, Swarovskis mm -hmm. and just, you know, basically have had every generation of 15 since then. And, you know, the 10 ELs around my neck and, and, or the 10 EL rangefinder and, and the 15s, the new 15s are phenomenal. Yes. Um, you know, in 2013 in December, just before um, the sheep hunts, uh, I got that uh, Swarovski 95 millimeter angled. First time I ever had an angled spotting scope, and um, I used it uh, for the sheep hunts. And I got to be real honest with you, I was I was lost um, trying my target acquisition. I was lost, and and there's people that have used an angle their whole life, and they're very very good at it. But um, after 30 days of use. Uh, I had to actually uh, sell it and get a, a straight eyepiece and went back to the straight. You know, it was it was one of those things, you know, people are like, you're crazy. The angle's awesome. And I couldn't find anything. I mean, Adam, if it was yeah. 300 yards away on a bare hillside, I couldn't find it. And, I, I'm, and the very, I'm the very same way. And I've tried them and I've tried to make it work. I, I've never gone to the point where I bought one, but I have friends that have them and I, I, I take them and, and I'm just, uh, call me an old Funny that I guess too set in my ways, but I just like don't give me what I 
give me my yeah. my regular and, and I know how to do it. And a lot of times, you know, you know, you get a, you spot something in your fifteens, you rip them off your tripod and grab on this, and you you got to be quick to find out what that yeah. is before it goes over the ridge. And uh, I just simply haven't been disciplined enough to try to make it work. <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, I, it, but I think it's like you said, it's one of those things you get used to and you're just, you're, you've got your habits and you feel comfortable with the way you've always done things. And I, I'm sure we're very similar in that regard. Um, uh, what about, uh, your clothing? What, what clothing are you wearing and why, um, what have you found that you like? I use predominantly just two kinds of clothing and, uh, you know, on some of my really hot, summer weather where I'll use I'll use some of the new Under Armour um, gear um, you know when it um, was really hot you need something uh, synthetic and something that doesn't steep and something that, that wicks moisture away well but uh, generally for all around all encompass gear I I have about everything QU makes and, and that's from their packs to their vinyl systems to their pants shirts clothes and all their layers and uh it's just incredible stuff. I know you use it extensively, and you know it's just when I look back through pictures or whatnot, five even ten years ago, which really isn't that long ago, and I I chuckle from time to time at just what I was wearing, which was basically just whatever I grabbed out of my closet that day before I went hunting. I threw on and I went hunting, but we've come a long way. When I say weave, I mean the outdoor uh, clothing industry has come a long way. And um, uh, I really like to um, use stuff. It's been incredible stuff for, for us to use. Uh, a lot of my guides use it. And uh, um, so I have to say, if, if you had to label us as what we use the most of, it would definitely be the QU stuff. Yeah, it's, I, I would agree. It's pretty hard to beat. And it, it seems like for me, I'm 42. Uh, the older I get, you know, anything I can do to cut weight and make uh, my pack lighter is is better on me. I'm certainly uh, get around good, but don't get around anything like uh, you know I did when I was say 20 years old. And I think most people are the same way. And I think uh, you know the 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 weight to warp, warmth ratio, warmth to weight ratio um, with the Kuyu gear um, is fantastic. And uh, from that standpoint alone, from a weight issue, uh, you know it's been incredible gear for for Dar and I as well. And, um, buddy, it's been awesome having you here on the podcast. We've got, you know, obviously so much we could talk about. I think we covered some good ground here and it was great, uh, getting your, uh, take on, uh, things going on in Utah. And, um, I want to wish you the best, uh, with the, your outfitting in, in Nevada and, and Utah and, uh, look forward to seeing you at one of these, uh, conventions down the road. And, um, you haven't got, the, have you, you haven't gotten the coos deer bug yet, have you? Well, the only reason I haven't is I, I, I'm I'm top heavy on my deer points in Arizona, and so uh -huh. I, being a mule deer nut, I I want one go around with one of these yeah. big deer up here north of the big ditch um, in the late season, and then and then it, it, it's game on. I will be um, hunting coos on the San Carlos here in a couple of weeks, so uh, that'll awesome. that'll get me going down there, and then. Uh, I I know based on a lot of friends that have hunted them, um, I know that there's something that uh, that I'll be hunting a lot more of just simply because 
um, the way you hunt them. Sitting behind glass, and and that's what you do whether you're hunting big deer or big mule deer, big uh, sheep. You sit behind glass, and it's just been circumstances. I've applied for them a lot in New Mexico. I've never applied in Arizona, like I said, because I've got all my points. And I just haven't haven't taken a trip to Mexico yet, but uh, that's something that's uh, on my... uh, on my list here real soon and uh, i'm sure i'll be doing it as, as often as i can from here on absolutely yeah you know I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat i think i have 15 points for deer in arizona which is not max but i i, I want that strip uh rifle hunt one time and i figure once i do that i'll go back to hunting coos fortunately we get to hunt yep. down in mexico but uh yeah i wish you the best on the draws in the upcoming season and and uh, all that you've got going on and uh look forward to maybe having you on a, another time and uh just appreciate it and god bless you and thanks for coming on here Hey, thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. Good luck to you guys, too, and uh, have a great year down in Mexico. Yeah, one thing I wanted to do, Adam, is uh, give you a chance to uh, tell people uh, how they can get a hold of you. Uh, I know that your uh, Instagram, you've got a great Instagram page. I believe it's Adam underscore R underscore Bronson. Um, And then uh, is it BronsonOutfitting.com? Yep, that's right. That's that's a simple one. Uh, my my cell phone, email are both on the on the web page. Um, easy to get a hold of, and so yeah, if uh, you have something that, in need of some help on a Utah or a Nevada sheep hunt, uh, don't hesitate to give us a call. That sounds great, buddy. Thanks for being on. I'll catch you later. All right. Thanks, Chase. 